Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 432nd live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday and brought to you today in part by ICD University Bookstore. And joining me this morning as my co-host is a very, very, very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated, and a very, very good morning to you, Erica. Well, Chuck, thank you very, very much, and good morning, everyone. Our lead story this morning is about site-neutral payments. As many of you probably know, a recent federal appeals court says that off-campus outpatient departments operated by hospitals will now be paid the same lower rate as that of physician clinics. That's a big story, and sure to trigger lawsuits. Indeed it is. Reporting our lead story this morning is going to be Terry Fletcher. And another big story continues to be the 2021 E&M guidelines. You're right. Returning to the broadcast this morning to report on the 2021 E&M guideline changes is Grant Huang. And my friend Linda Holtzman will be substituting for Lori Johnson and her coding report. Lori will be reporting on the outcome of the recent Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting. Looking forward to having Linda on the broadcast, as always. And you have a talkback segment this morning. What is on your radar screen? Well, I'm going to give my opinion on whether being familiar with clinical criteria is all it takes to be a fetus. Wow. I'm really looking forward to hearing you comment on that, Erica. We have much news to report, and we begin with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by MedLearn Publishing, reminding you that 2021 is just around the corner and MedLearn has the up-to-date resources to guide you through coding, billing, and compliance in the new year. Order before September 30th and save 15% on your 2021 MedLearn Publishing resources using the code REN, R-E-N, 1521 at checkout. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And at least in the world of Medicare, reimbursement is based on the concept that everything averages out. When reimbursement rates fall short of cost during one period, it's corrected in the next period. Medicare computes market basket adjustments to given rates based on historical cost report data. And as census rates across the country dropped during the pandemic, the cost per day and the cost per case for for providers soared. When we look at operating costs of hospitals, skilled nursing homes, and other facilities, we know that costs can be broken down into the following category, fixed costs that can't be changed, semi-variable costs that can't be changed that can be changed over time, and variable costs that can be changed in the short term. I argue that only a small amount of provider costs are variable. As census rates plummeted in hospitals across the country, the cost per patient day and visit and discharge have soared. First, and in defense of providers, I'm reminded of the case of Captain Charles Sully Sullenberger. In 2009, he landed a plane in the Hudson River after geese were sucked into the plane's engine. He was brought up on disciplinary charges when regulators argued that, based on computer simulations, he could have landed the plane back at the Guadalajara Airport after the bird strike. Captain Sully argued successfully that in the real world, he could not have known that the engines had failed at the time the engines failed and that by that time it was too late to make the return trip. Similarly, providers have no way of knowing the impact on census or duration of the pandemic to make changes to any of the variable costs they do control. The cost data that drives new market basket adjustments to reimburse providers for higher costs per patient days, discharge, and visits 
is years away. Even when hospitals and other facilities providers would benefit from these increases to offset losses during the pandemic, how will regulators explain to a skeptical public in several years that the market basket increase is now 25 or 30 percent? Medicare cost reports for providers with June 30 year ends are due on November 30th. The impact on costs will show up in files released in February of next year. While some of the impact on census will be seen in these reports, it won't be until February of 2022 that we will have data for providers that give us a clearer picture of the financial impact on costs during the pandemic. Can providers wait that long for relief? We can only hope so. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's September the 22nd, and you're listening to the 432nd live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Now, everyone on your team, whether they're working on-site or remotely, can have unlimited access to the complete library of educational coding and documentation webcasts from ICD-10 Monitor. That's more than 40 educational webcasts focusing on current coding issues and challenges, like the 2021 Inpatient Prospective Payment System Final Rule. These webcasts provide important analysis from subject matter experts on timely topics, including coding and guideline changes, clinical documentation integrity, as well as insights on new topics that come up throughout the year. Subscribe now to the ICD-10 Monitor Portal. For one affordable annual fee, everyone on your team can access dozens of exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcasts. Visit the portal page at ICD University for more details and to sign up for a complimentary three-day trial. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Linda Holtzman. She's sitting in this morning for Lori Johnson, and good morning, Linda. Good morning, Chuck. Well, there was a lot going on at last week's ICD-10 Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting. On the procedure code side, there were some interesting proposals for restriction of the coronary sinus as a treatment for refractory angina, uh, as well as several alternatives to spine fusion that allow the patient to have uh, flexibility. A particular note, there was a discussion on CAR T-cell therapies, which are drugs uh, bioengineered from each patient's own T-cells to attack that specific patient's cancer. The coding problem is that current CAR T-cell codes are found in two different code tables, XW0 and XW2. The proposal for several new CAR T-cell codes uh, also asked to merge all codes into a single table, and that was popular. There were also what's become the usual proposals for drugs and items associated with NCAPs. The one that stands out is a code for single-use duodenoscope for ERCP to reduce infections that occur despite cleaning the scopes. So yes, it's a supply, not something ordinarily coded in ICD-10 PCS. But CMS began the meeting by reminding attendees that Section X codes are intended for things that are not usually coded. CMS also put forward a proposal to delete Section X codes once the NTAP has expired or after a certain number of years. If there's high utilization for a particular Section X code that's slated for deletion, they'll index that procedure to an existing code in Section 0, but it won't be specific. Lots of back and forth on this. Nothing is final yet. The diagnosis code side was jam-packed with 40 proposals so many, we didn't even get to them all. What I found interesting was the number of proposals for rare diseases. You may also be happy to know 
about a proposal to create a distinct code for depression, NOS, rather than coding it to major depressive disorder as we do now. I'm in favor of that. Some of the proposals were quite lengthy. For example, two physician specialty societies are trying a third time to expand today's single symptom code for cough into six new codes, differentiating acute, subacute, chronic cough, a few other types of cough. There was also a proposal to create over 100 new codes for endometriosis to specify uh, many additional sites, laterality like left and right uterosacral ligament, and also depth of invasion, superficial versus deep and deeply invasive. Phew, 100 new codes just for that. As always, I encourage you to retrieve the proposals from the CNM website, do your own review, and make comments by November 9th. They really do want to know what you think you can influence the codes that you'll use. Erica? So you should all know that the way I know Linda is through participating in the CNM committee meetings, and I would see her there, and she would stand up and make comments, and I would be like, that was just what I was going to say. She also failed to mention that she helps prepare proposals to change our code sets for the better. So that was my friend, Linda Holtzman. Linda is founder of Clarity Coding and an avid follower of the CMS Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting, just like me. One of the big stories we're covering is the 2021 E&M guideline changes. Returning to the broadcast report on the changes is Grant Hong. Good morning, Chuck. By now, I hope everyone listening is committed to being prepared for the 2021 E&M changes because they're locked in, and the focus now should be on education for coders, auditors, and providers. Now, we've talked on this program before about the implications of CPT eliminating the history and physical exam as factors in determining the E&M code level. The most important takeaway is that medical decision-making, or MDM, will now take center stage. Yes, the amount of time spent will be the other decisive factor in 2021, but either way, you'll still need documentation that supports the level of medical necessity commensurate with the E&M level selected. The time is pretty simple, and it won't apply in all encounters. MDM is going to have much more applicability, and the way it's scored under the 2021 rules, it's actually changing quite a bit when it comes to the data element. Now, this is going to seem complicated, but bear with me. MDM will still have the same three elements, number and complexity of problems addressed, amount and or complexity of data reviewed, and the overall risk of complications, morbidity, and or mortality. But the second piece, the data piece, is what I like to focus on in this segment because it is changing radically. There are now three categories, each describing different types of clinical data that could be documented. Category one is for tests and documents, but it can also include the use of an independent historian. Category two is unique because it changes depending on whether or not an independent interpretation of tests was documented. When there's no independent test interpretation documented, category two changes to assessing whether an independent historian was documented. And if so, it's credited toward a low level of data review supporting low medical complexity. When an independent test interpretation is done, category two gets credited toward a moderate level of data review, while the independent historian element gets reassigned to category one. If you do both, the test interpretation is credited under category two and the historian under category one. Category three is simpler. It's the discussion of patient management or test interpretation with an external provider. 
defined as a healthcare professional not in the same group practice or of a different specialty in the same practice. If your head is spinning, don't worry. We'll have a table illustrating this in my accompanying story, which will appear on the ICD-10 monitor and rack monitor websites. Whether you're a visual learner or not, you're going to want to take a peek at this table for the sake of clarity. One major change, and the CPT language explaining this is subtle, so it's easy to miss, is that in 2021, we will count each unique diagnostic or laboratory test as one point under Category 1, the category for tests and documents. So if the doctor orders a chest x-ray and a knee x-ray, that goes for two points under Category 1. This is wholly different from how we do it now, where points are credited based on the modality so that two x-rays or one x-ray and one MRI is one point because they're both radiology tests. This new way of quantifying data for MDM purposes will seem complicated at first, but you'll get used to it. Now, I suspect doctors will appreciate getting credited for each unique test or order. I've had doctors yell at me during education sessions for telling them they get one point for a bunch of radiology tests, even though from their perspective, that's a lot of data to analyze. Detailed changes like this are the reason we should all be preparing now, both to understand it ourselves and to prepare providers for the new paradigm. And now I'll turn it over to Erica. Thanks, Grant. That was a great analysis, and I agree with wholeheartedly with everything you said. That was Grant Wong. Grant is the Director of Content for Doctors Management. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Grant, thank you very much for that excellent story. And a program note, Terry Fletcher is going to continue her two-part series on the E&M Code Changes. Her webcast is coming up October the 8th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. You can register now to attend this very important webcast. Battle lines could be drawn soon in a court battle. We'll have the details in 60 seconds. That's when Terry Fletcher joins us to report our lead story. This is Talk 10 Tuesdays. It's a broadcast service of ICD-10 Monitor. Stand by. We invite you to spend an hour with Dr. Erica Reamer, who will demystify many aspects of sepsis during an upcoming ICD-10 Monitor webcast. Learn what sepsis really is, how to recognize its clinical indicators, and how to obtain documentation that supports its diagnosis. You'll also gain a clearer understanding of which COVID-19 patients are likely to have sepsis. Diagnosing and treating sepsis constitute a massive expenditure of healthcare dollars in the U.S. Medicare alone pays out an estimated $6 billion annually for sepsis care. But your facility won't realize its full revenue potential with repeated claim denials attributable to substandard clinical practices and documentation. During these financially challenging times, it's imperative to ensure that your sepsis coding and documentation satisfy the demands of payers. So, register to attend. Sepsis, optimize your ICD-10-CM coding and clinical documentation. The webcast is this Thursday, September 24th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now and save $25 when you enter coupon code TUESDAY at checkout. A federal appeals court has reversed the decision of a lower court and has upheld the action by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to pay formerly grandfathered off-campus outpatient departments run by hospitals at the same lower rate as physician clinics. Reporting our lead story this morning is Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. Looks like battle lines could be drawn very soon over this decision. Good morning, Chuck, and you're all correct. Good morning, everyone. As CMS looks to curb health care costs, it has attempted to pay the same rates to hospital-owned facilities as independent physician groups, known as site-neutral payments. In November, November of last year, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services decided to move forward with a two-year phase-in 
of site-neutral payments under the OPPS. Despite a decision in the district court earlier in the year, siding with hospitals in their fight to keep the higher outpatient payments for off-campus facilities, this reduction for evaluation management services provided at off-campus provider-based hospital departments would cut their reimbursement by 60%. The AHA, the Association of American Medical Colleges, and dozens of hospitals across the nation sued the Health and Human Services Department. After an appeals court overturned the district court's decision, it held that HHS reduction in reimbursement for ENM services provided by off-campus provider-based departments falls within its authority to develop a method to control unnecessary increases in the volume of outpatient services. According to HHS and CMS estimates, 2019 would have saved $380 million, and it could reduce hospital revenues in 2020 by $880 million. HHS contains that if the service is already being provided for and accessible to patients from independent physicians, why isn't there equal or neutral payments? That's where the hospitals lose their position and not being able to respond to that question beyond their higher regulated site. The quality and access to care is still there for patients. However, AHA continues to urge Congress to reject calls for any additional neutral site payment policies for hospital outpatient departments. Their position, again, is falling on the side of the pandemic, saying that Americans rely heavily on hospitals to provide 24-7 access to care for all types of patients to serve as safely as a safety net provider for vulnerable populations and to have the resources needed to respond to disasters. AHA General Counsel Melinda Hatton said in a statement to healthcare uh, uh, groups that this is a disappointing ruling and is considering its options going forward. She said that the ruling fails to account for the fundamental differences between hospital outpatient departments and other sites of care. Hospitals are open 24-7, held to a higher regulatory standard, and are often the only point of access for patients with the most severe chronic condition, all of whom receive treatment regardless of ability to pay. However, the opinion by the appeals court judge noted that without site, uh, site neutrality, off-campus outpatient apartments can get paid up to 114% more than freestanding physician offices. You can see the struggle here. It's all about reimbursement. In 2015, JAMA study found payments for office visits in a hospital-owned setting were on the average $68 higher than for those standing in the, for those at standalone offices. The court's opinion was the lower the reimbursement rate for a service, the less incentive to provide it, all else being equal. There's a perception that with hospitals bleeding red ink right now, the increased reimbursement could trigger overutilization for outpatient services. DC Circuit Judge Servesian wrote, HHS did act properly in trying to reduce the number of visits being paid at the higher rate. Reducing the payment rate for a particular service readily qualifies in common parlance under the OPPS as a method for, again, controlling unnecessary increases in the volume of that service. The lower the reimbursement rate for the service, the less incentive to provide it. Reducing the reimbursement rate is naturally suited to address unnecessary increases in the overall volume provided by hospitals. Hospitals will continue this fight. They are concerned about that major cut in reimbursements as they should be. However, they have to look beyond that higher regulated uh, site information if they're going to continue their argument because CMS believes it's paying millions of tax dollars for patient services in hospital outpatient departments that could be provided at less expense at physician offices and the American Association of Family Physicians agree. CMS Administrator Seema Verma tweeted that the ruling is a win for American patients, that a patient should have to pay, shouldn't have to pay more for an outpatient department visit 
than a visit to a doctor's office. Hospitals have also sued to stop similar neutral site payment policies from going forward in the final 2020 hospital OPPS rule. And this is going to continue to garner legal challenges of the rule. Another breaking news I just wanted to mention, CMS has decided to put on hold the garnishment of provider Medicare payments that participated in the Accelerated and Advanced Payment Program. These were loans that went out in April, and the repayment was supposed to begin in August or 120 days after receipt. There's no timetable for recruitment at this time, but it will happen in the form of offsetting your payments for Medicare. I will have a full article on the topic later today with more details on ICD10Monitor.com. Erica, back to you. Thanks, Terry. That was Terry Fletcher. Terry is a nationally recognized professional coder and auditor. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And you can read Terry's reporting on this very important topic in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. Now is the time for our very popular segment here at Talk Ten Tuesdays, and it's called Talk Back, and it features our very own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, what's on your radar screen today? Well, as I was deleting emails one morning, I saw a picture of Cynthia Tang, as in Pinson and Tang, which captured my attention because I don't, I'm not sure I've ever met her before. I then noticed the title of her article, Positioning Coders for CDI Success. Let me preface this talk back with stating that some of the best CDSs I have known came from the HIM world and were not nurses. Ms. Tang said, and I quote, coding specialists, not just nurses, can and should perform the CDI function. She further stated, just as CDI specialists benefit from learning coding guidelines and principles, coding specialists can and should learn the clinical criteria. I agree that the best CDI specialists understand coding guidelines and principles and are not reluctant to ask for input from coders or explanations of the coding rules. I also believe it is important that coding specialists learn clinical criteria. Again, it makes them better at their job. But clinical criteria are only one tool in the doctor's bag of clinical medicine. If we were really able to distill medicine down to clinical decision tools, we wouldn't need clinicians. Watson, the supercomputer, could practice medicine instead. However, that is not the case. The best example I can think of is sepsis. Sepsis is a clinical syndrome recognized by competent clinicians trying to prevent out-of-control infections from resulting in death. It has myriad presentations recognized by organ dysfunction due to a dysregulated host response to the localized infection. It's not SIRS, and it's not SOFA. Clinical criteria may clue us in to some of these cases, but we'll miss others which require a keen clinical eye. Can coders have a clinical eye? Absolutely. Ask Lisa Lorenzi and Kathy Merchland, shining examples of coders turned savvy CDSs. It takes the ability to read charts and recognize patterns, an inquisitiveness to ask clinicians to share their thought process, and it takes experience. I do not believe the average, fresh, new coder could serve as a CDIS straight out of graduation, unless they had some previous medical training, like they were, par- they were a paramedic um, or, or a respiratory therapist or something like that. I believe it takes some years of scrutinizing medical records, 
reading literature, and trying to glean the story from the documentation. Taking an anatomy course does not a master pathologist make. CDI is really about reading between the lines, finding the diagnoses that may be present but are absent in the record. It is about following the narrative and clinically validating whether the documentation and the diagnoses make sense. When I do a chart review, my brain is trying to piece together the clinical indicators to make hypotheses, to see if I can deduce what is going on, and then see if the documentation confirms it, refutes it, or just misses the boat. This is not easily taught, nor can it be written down in a 250-page CDI Bible. Coders who want to be CDSs can do several things to achieve their goal. Use clinical criteria as guidelines, not indisputable rules. Recognize that there are exceptions. Try to understand why the providers didn't think the clinical indicators were consistent with that clinical condition, even though the clinical criteria might have suggested it were present. Talk to providers and nurse CDSs to have them explain their thought processes. Have them present clinical topics at your staff meetings. Attend society conferences where clinicians are presenting. Read articles which have case studies or case reports. Establish a relationship with a provider or physician advisor and bounce questions off of them. Examine the chart like a reader, not like an editor or proofreader. Try to understand the story. Don't just be scanning for missing CCs or MCCs. Don't follow CAC computer-assisted coding, blindly. The practice of medicine takes clinical criteria into consideration, but clinical judgment can override criteria. There are many useful reference books and websites, but they are not going to make anyone a clinician. It takes understanding of the pathophysiology and keeping the patient always in the forefront. Clinical documentation integrity specialists, be they nurses or coders, would do well to remember this. That's what I've got today for my talk back, Chuck. Back to you. Thanks, Erica, very much. Excellent reporting on that subject. We've asked our panelists to remain to answer some of the questions. We do have a question from our pal, Rose Dunn. And Grant, this question is directed to you. Erica, read the question, would you please? I sure will. Um, so Rose Dunn asked, she, she said that she has not found any definitive statement that says the use of the 95 or 97 guidelines um, criteria uh, is prohibited from being used for office or outpatient visits. She has found statements that imply, such as, quote, it would be complicated slash confusing to use 95, 97, and 21, close quote, but these statements do not say prohibited. Have you seen official guidance saying that 95-97 guidelines are prohibited for the use in the office outpatient site of service? Thanks for the question. So uh, I think the answer is yes, it is prohibited. Um, you can kind of parse the language from CMS how you will, but uh, the verbiage from the 2020 Physician Fee Schedule final rule says that they appreciate concerns about confusion if we allow them to change, but, quote, we believe that allowing practitioners to use either the 95 and 97 guidelines or CPT's new documentation guidelines for the revised office outpatient EDM code set would create further burden. They said some commenters stated that the policy would, quote, introduce too much variation in medical record format and content or too many potential frameworks against which an auditor might review a claim, end quote. 
And they said that because they believe that the new guidelines will actually accomplish greater burden reduction than the policies they finalized in the 2019 final rule, they are finalizing the proposal to adopt the CPT MDM guidelines and allow the use of time or MDM. So to me, that's pretty explicit uh, that 1995-1997 rules uh, are not going to be uh, supported for, for those codes in 2021. I'd like to actually weigh in for one second here. I agree with Grant's um, assessment, and I would like to actually say that I am supportive of using um, time and or medical decision-making as being the component that's important, but I want everyone to remember that it doesn't mean that you throw out the 95-97 guidelines for, number one, anything other than the office and outpatient visits for right now, and number two, you still should really be doing the appropriate level, history and physical, to take the best care of the patient. This doesn't mean that you don't need to do any history and physical at all, and you just need to dive straight into the medical decision-making. I just want to um, point that out. Terry, did you have anything else really quick to say? Yes. Also, I wanted to, just to give a quick advice, try to use your current documentation, take some records, and audit them on the current uh, guidelines and then audit them using the 2021 and show your physicians where the education needs to be. Grant is 100% correct that it's going to change the burden. And so just show them where they need the education and possibly how much easier it will be to reach some of those levels of service. That's excellent advice. Thank you so much, Terry. Chuck, I think that's all the time we have. Erica, you're absolutely right. Terry, thank you. And Grant, thank you very much. And a program note, I want to say this again. Remember, Terry Fletcher has an excellent webcast coming up. Part 2 on E&M Code Changes is coming your way October the 8th, 1.30 p.m. Eastern. That is going to be a wrap for us. This is our 432nd live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. We want to thank our panelists today, Grant Honk, Terry Fletcher, Linda Holtzman, Tim Powell, and, of course, our co-host, Dr. Erica Reber. And one more thing before we go, folks presidential election is coming up November 3rd, so if you haven't already done so now, right now would be a good time to go out and register to vote in this upcoming election. And remember, you can listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's free. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you so very much for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.